Friends, Romans, countrymen, let me your ears. Ladies and gentlemen, you are tuned to the MC Lars podcast. Thanks for tuning in. It is Monday, January 20th. This is episode 73, and I wanted to announce that I just released my Avengers song on Patreon. Next week, I'm doing a Ska Iron Man 3 song, and uh, you guys can support. If you want to hear all this music, I'm doing songs about the entire MCU, patreon.com slash Lars. Check out that flavor. Speaking of movies, I wanted to shout out a documentarian I just discovered, this guy, Frederick Wiseman. I feel like film students and movie buffs probably know about him, but he did a really interesting documentary called Welfare about um, the welfare system, and it was filmed like in an office in the 70s, one location, and it's all the stories of these people. And he did another one I'm watching called Monrovia, Indiana. But anyway, I'm on letterboxd.com. Just search for MC Lars, and I review the movies I watch. Sometimes I rate them. And yeah, I'd love to, if you add me, I'll add you guys back because I want to see what you guys are watching. And of course, I reviewed all the um, Marvel's Cinematic Universe movies. I gave, gave them ratings. I, don't, I didn't write for all of them, but sometimes I'll write like a little bit about the movies I watch. So check that out. This week's episode is brought to you by the Patreon Larsons. Shout out to the old ones, Nalen, MPW, and James. Shout out to the new ones, Noam Chomsky, BT, and Chris Cam. Y'all keep this process going. You keep me going. Thank you very much. I'm going on tour with Schaefer the Dark Lord and the Double Clicks. NerdcoreTour.com for tickets. And uh, I've got some cool merch coming up. Schaefer and I did an EP. It's like all of our songs we've done together, remastered. Some of them are remixed. We have a new song about the Mandalorian. We have an awesome poster with us. I've got some enamel pins. I've got a new shirt with the Baby Yoda, MC Lars version. Vinyl, you can get Dewey Decibel and some of my old stuff. And I got a new USB with all of my flavors. So if you follow me on social media, you maybe see some of this. But the merch is just popping this tour. I wanted to shout that out because I'm in the t-shirt business and I'm in the podcast business too. But uh, let's talk about where I'm going. I'm just going to say the dates, nerdcoretour.com. I'm going to just say it starts February 5th. It ends the 26th. There's a few days off, but here's where we're going in order. I'm not going to say each date. You feel me? Boston, Brooklyn, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Carborough, Orlando, Atlanta, Austin, Dallas, Oklahoma City, Kansas City, Minneapolis, Chicago, Cleveland, Ann Arbor, Columbus, Rochester. Double clicks are only on the last week, but this tour is going to be tight. It's my only tour I'm doing this year. Um, I'm talking to some homies about something next year, but some stuff I can't reveal quite yet. But if you want to come see me this year, please come to one of the shows on the Baby Yoda 2020 campaign trail. We're keeping the meme alive. <laughs> this week, we have Doc Pop, Dr. Popular. And there's also a Doc Ock, Dr. Awkward, and sometimes in my head I get confused about which one of them abbreviates Doc Pop, Doc Ock, because they're both artists I've worked with, they're both nerdcore artists, they're both awesome, but this is, this episode's with Dr. Popular, and I met him through Whitey Cracker when we were doing the Digital Gangster LP in 2008, and uh, he lives in San Francisco, and I was living there at the time, and we'd go to the studio, and he did some of the beats for that record, he has a verse on the 9-11 uh, Giuliani song. Um, which is kind of controversial, but classic. He's a musician. He's a famous yo-yoist. He's a game designer. His day job is that he works at WordPress and uh, he works on, they have a magazine that comes out and he helps design it. And uh, so that's kind of cool. He's like in the marketing division at WordPress. He recorded this on his computer mic in a conference room. So it's kind of echoey. Usually I like to try to do my interviews face to face. So there's a lot of reverb, but you can you can hear him. And um, what did I want to say? Oh yeah. He, we, on this interview, we talk about the composition of chiptune as a genre, and I learned something interesting, that when you have a bunch of instruments together, 
a song can get overclocked, meaning it slows down like a drummer who's tired. And that's kind of cool that, that like chip, chip music has this fungible, non-fixed tempo. He talks about that. And he talks about Knife Tank, his new Kickstarter card-throwing game that met its goal. He says he's going for a 1,000 supporters. So check that out. Um, but when we hear one of his songs. So this is my interview with San Francisco's Dr. Popular, right here on the MC Lars Podcast. Doc Pop on the MC Lars Podcast. What's up, man? What's up, Lars? How are you? It's been many years since we talked. Yeah. Remember hanging out, recording uh, uh, Digital Pirates? The Digital Pirates EP. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And then I saw you briefly because you opened for us at the Uptown in like 2013, maybe? Yeah, that was the Ugly Sweaty sweaty Party, (laughs) which by the end of the uh, the thing, we were sweaty, but it was the Ugly Sweater Party. And that was, yeah, that was way a while ago. So Mm. it's good to see you, bud. Good seeing you, man. Good, good, good to be here. You have a Kickstarter. Tell us about your new game. Uh, so I have been making video games for about 10 years. And uh, about three or four years ago, I was like, man, making video games is too time consuming. It takes too long. I'm going to make a board game. I bet you I can make a board game in like a month. And I kind of did. I ended up making like four or five board games, but I never got them shipped. And Mm. I am finally, finally, finally at that final percent ready to ship. January 14th, uh, I have my very first board game, card game going live. It's called Knife Tank, The Shuffling. Uh, And the game is about uh, you are a tank with a knife on it. And I really don't feel like I need to say much more to sell it. You're a tank with a knife on it. That's tight. And it's a card game. It's a card game. So it's, it's sort of similar to um, like Warhammer, um, where you've got a tank and your opponent's got a tank. But instead of using rulers and dice, it's all done with cards. But it actually is a, a tank printed on a card that you move from your side of the table across, like slowly, turn by turn, to your opponent's side. Or if you get close to your opponent, then you stab them to death. I, 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 think, I think this exists in a world with like gravity that's too heavy for bullets. So that's why tanks have knives. That's my, <laughs> it's my explanation. Like if you fire a bullet, it just falls on the ground in front of you. So like this is in a uh, heavy gravity uh, area where tanks come within, within feet of each other and stab at each other. Uh, but yeah, it takes place on a tabletop and it actually just turns your tabletop into sort of a war game, uh, strategy game. So you've already made it. You're just the Kickstarters to pay for the shipping of it and the manufacturing or? Yeah. Kickstarters for the manufacturing. Um, I need to do a thousand units uh, as the minimum quantity. And I don't want to sell 300 units and like break even and be stuck with 700. So like I'm, I'm trying to sell 1000 copies of this game at the very least. Um, and that is just manufacturing and yeah, fulfillment, you know, shipping and stuff like that. Um, and you know, that'll, that'll, that'll make it all worthwhile. And if it, if I don't sell a thousand, if I only sell 500, then maybe I'll relaunch the campaign again. Uh, I've I've actually done nine other Kickstarters before and the Mm. most I've ever gotten backer wise, the most number of backers was about 350. 
So I have to triple my best Kickstarter. Um, you know, usually I'm selling yo-yos and stuff. Uh, so like a yo-yo is like uh, 50 to $75. You can sell 200 of them and, and you know, be, be in the $10,000 range or whatever. Uh, but for this one, it's all about numbers of backers, man. Just getting people excited about, uh, about stabbing each other with their cards and uh, trying to get a thousand people. How do you get the Kickstarter platform to feature you? That's a good question. Like uh, they, they look at everything that goes through because they have to approve it. And um, sometimes uh, they'll just be like, this is a dope project. I'm really into it. And they'll feature it. It's still a pretty, it's, it's, it's sort of like Apple. It's like a very secretive process, what they're going to feature. Apple never tells you if they're going to feature your app. You just get surprised like everyone else. And you'd be like, Oh, holy crap. We're on the front page. Um, Kickstarter won't tell me they won't communicate or anything like that, but they've liked a lot of my projects in the past. And I noticed a lot of my rewards oftentimes go to Kickstarter employees. So there's people there Mm. that, that, you know, love me. And that helps. Uh, I, I know already uh, that it's a projects we love, which is just a little badge they put on the, the project. But what's really going to make a difference is if um, they have like a games email list uh, that you know people who are really into Kickstarter games subscribe to. If I can get on that list, which I you know have no idea how to do that or if that's going to happen, but if I can, you know that could make or break the campaign. Yeah. So it's kind of like. Um you can't completely rely on the fact that you're going to get these, this new exposure on Kickstarter, but when it happens, it's good, right? You can't plan on that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What usually tends to be the best thing for me of, of like, uh, since we're talking like Kickstarter tips and stuff, like sometimes you'll get featured on like boing, boing. Um, and that Mm. does. Okay. Uh, sometimes uh, or, or some other sort of, you know, laughing squid or, or CNET or, or petapixel. Sometimes you'll, you'll get featured and you'll get maybe a hundred clicks. And of those, you'll get maybe 10 people, you know, one in 10 who actually support the thing. Um, and sometimes you'll get uh, featured on Kickstarter's like front page or whatever, and that could be good. That could get you maybe fifty to hundred backers. But oftentimes, it's it's really about those core people. You know, I've got an email list of people who are excited about the game already, um, people who've backed my projects in the past, or people who have just played this at a playtesting event or something. Those those people are hopefully going to give me a good head start. You know, so I have 100 or 200 people on the very first day and then the friends of usually get notified. So um, I, I get notified. I think when you back things on Kickstarter, I see, you know, I see them and I'm often like, oh, Lars back this. It must be cool. I'm going to check it out. And that actually is the best traffic driver for me is that like the the friends who backed this email usually sends me the most the most traffic, which is really cool because it it's it's sort of saying that in this world there's all these authorities out there but the only authority we really listen to is our friends you know our friends and families mm-hmm. who we trust you were born where i was born in middle tennessee an hour south of uh, nashville uh i was going as brian roberts uh at the time uh and i didn't i didn't actually start using the name doc pop until i moved away from tennessee because there weren't any other brian's growing up and then when I went to St. Louis, man, like I didn't know this, but Brian is like a regional name in St. Louis or something in the Midwest. And people are just constantly saying, hey, Brian, how's it going? And they weren't talking to me. And I was super lonely. Uh, my business was doing terrible. I had no friends. And people were constantly saying my name. And then, 
it wasn't me. So that's when I started going by Doc. When did you come out to San Francisco? Uh, about 15 years ago. So between wow. between Nashville, Tennessee, or you know, kind of small town Tennessee, uh, and now what happened is. On my 21st birthday, I tried getting signed to K Records in Olympia, Washington. So I was I had this correspondence with them, uh, and uh, you know I showed up on my 21st birthday just thinking if I just appeared, they would just be like, "Oh, the deal is done. Let's let's sign this guy." <laughs> and that was kind of a bust, but it was a great trip. And I picked up a yo-yo on that trip in uh, Seattle. Like as I was just passing through, I stopped by the Space Needle, picked up a yo-yo because it was a little cheaper than the Snow Globe. Um, and I needed a little, you know, trinket and yo-yoed the whole week I was on Olympia. And when I came back to Nashville, Tennessee, there was a guy opening a yo-yo store that day and he needed an employee. And I was like a week better than most other people. So like, because I got into yo-yoing, uh, I became this, you know, manager and then a regional manager for this yo-yo store. I started traveling around opening yo-yo stores and running yo-yo contests. And then I became a pro and I lived in uh, Chattanooga and, uh, Virginia and St. Louis and San Diego and Minneapolis. And it was all moving around because of yo-yoing. Uh, the reason I'm in San Francisco is even, uh, I, there was a yo-yo show in the mission and I came out here, uh, did this thing called the monsters of yo and had the best night of my life and just never caught my flight home. So all of the travel <laughs> I've done in the past, like 20 years, uh, has been because of yo-yoing. I, if I didn't get a yo-yo on that trip to Seattle, I guarantee you I would I would still be in Chattanooga or Nashville or something. So people would pay you to come and compete in tournaments? How does a professional yo-yo circuit work? There, there's a couple ways you can be a professional yo-yoer. There's um, yeah. uh, selling yo-yos is the way that I, I do it, right? So I have like a yo-yo company now um, that manufactures yo-yos and uh, I have a Patreon too. So I do a, a monthly yo-yo vlog where I teach yo-yo tricks. And, um, you know, I've got my Patreon sponsors who help keep that alive. And then um, I sell yo-yos throughout the month. Uh, other people have uh, careers where maybe Hasbro during a yo-yo boom, Hasbro will hire them to go to Walmarts all around a region. Uh, like I was doing that in San Diego. I was, you know, traveling to Mexico to Walmarts one day and then going up to LA the next day just to, just to hang out in a Walmart and teach people how to yo-yo. Um, and that's kind of a, a lame lifestyle <laughs> hanging out, hanging out. Like, you know, sometimes you have big crowds and stuff, but sometimes you're just in a Walmart all day trying to sell yo-yos and no one's around. Um, so that's another way to be a pro. There's not many people who get paid just to go to a contest. There's a few. Um, and mm. mostly they get paid like their flight and hotel. They're not like mm. making a living off of it. The, the people who are making livings either have yo-yo shops um, where they're selling yo-yos or they uh, work for a company, you know, seasonally uh, doing demo work. That's tight. So we met through Whitey Cracker, right? Is that yeah, how probably. we linked or, and how did you and him link? Just through Nerdcore. I mean, it was, uh, I yeah. had an, I had an album called me geek pretty one day, uh, that came out about 15 years ago. And, um, that was just sort of the, the height of the, you know, the early wave of Nerdcore. Uh, there was two documentaries at the time and there was the rhyme torrents, uh, forum and, uh, I was making beats and, uh, I, I don't know if I made beats for Whitey or, or what, but 
you know, we just, we just knew each other because it was a small scene, uh, where everybody mm. seemed to know each other. Uh, and I think the first time we might've met might've been when you came to record at the Rondo brothers. Uh, but I'm not wow. sure. Probably right. So, so you hadn't met Whitey Cracker in real life before that, or had you? It's quite possible that I had not met him. There, there's, there was a few things like, you know, there was a bunch of rappers that like were asked to come to CES and be at a booth mm. or whatever. So like, I might have done one of those things with them, but I kind of feel like there was the two tiers, you know, there was uh front a lot and MC Chris and Whitey Cracker who were, you know, going to CES to be on some sort of big stage. And then there was a whole bunch of us internet rappers that were just getting featured at a booth, <laughs> you know, like people were giving right. out t-shirts and stuff next to us and we're rapping uh, to promote some, some Sony hardware or something. And um, you were one of the first people that I heard of who was doing the chiptune stuff and using your Game Boy as an instrument. That was like, you're definitely a pioneer in that realm, right? Would you agree? Um, I, I would say that in chiptune, I am one of the few artists that's doing like vocals in chiptune. Um, mm. And in that sense, yeah, I think there, there's not many other people out there that, that, um, that sound like what I'm doing. Uh, the, there, there was a sort of... When people say chiptune music, the, the definition is just using um, hardware that wasn't intended to make music, using it musically. And that's usually going to be um, old video game hardware. Uh, but I mean, you could make chiptunes on pocket calculators uh, or whatever, right? Um, and it usually, it usually involves a certain sound, you know, like square wavy retro sound. Um, but when you think of chiptune music, you almost always think of like Anamanaguchi or Bitshifter, uh, anthemic dance music, uh, instrumental and very high energy, kind of jazzy sometimes. Mm. Uh, and the stuff I'm doing is not, uh, is not that. So there's chiptune sort of the genre of music. And then there's chiptune, the definition of making music on retro hardware. And I think it's really cool now that there are like chiptune death metal artists and thrash metal and chiptune punk and chiptune ska. Uh, there's, you know, it's, it's really expanded, but, uh, I do remember playing chiptune shows and doing this kind of emo, uh, electronic dance music, uh, or pop music and the crowd being a little confused. They're like, we like game boys, but, uh, this guy's singing and it's kind of depressing. Hmm. So it's like the literal definition is just having a game boy, right? That's the, origin of it that's what i've heard that anything other than that is um derivative right if you're not just performing with your game boy and and the instruments in that then it's not chip tune technically is that well, sure, true there's, or there's like there's pure chip enthusiasts who uh yeah. um you know a lot of people create chip tunes using emulators uh and not even video game emulators but like using Re reason or audacity there's plugins now that make you sound like chip tune right so there's like fake bit is what they call that. And right. I, I don't really have any say in that. Um, like in terms of uh, if I like the music, I like it. And if I don't, I don't. Um, but it is kind of interesting. Sometimes I wonder if I would be interested in an artist if they weren't really standing up there playing with a Game Boy or whatever. Like I wasn't listening to electronic music before this. I was listening to punk and rock. Uh, and, you know, I go and see stuff This straight up four on the floor dance beat. And I like it and I have fun, but every now and then I'm like, am I here because this is a Game Boy and it's kind of novel or am I here because I like the music? 
Um, but as far as mm-hmm. if people are using real beats or not, or real um, instruments or not, that that has been kind of a thing in the past, and now it's not quite as big a deal. It's like with rap, the switch from back in the day, it was kind of unorthodox to use anything but turntables, right? And the definition of that has expanded as the aesthetic grows. And now chiptune, I remember one of the first mainstream moments for me was Beck's um, 2004 record had all those remixes yeah. that were like chip, chip based, and that was that was tight. <laughs> G- ghetto chip malfunction. Yeah. malfunction. That was a that was a uh, that was hell yeah. Uh, yeah, and it had this. Um, it was actually fake bit. It was uh, it was produced to sound like chip tune, but they were getting you know sharp kicks and snares, punchy snares that you could tell like now listening to it uh, that yeah. they were they were like combining sounds. But back then I was like, holy shit, man! This this Game Boy stuff sounds awesome. I I think that's one of the songs that got me interested in chip tune. Uh, that really made me want to try it was because you know I loved Beck, and then I heard this you know, back chiptune remix. And I was like, I want to do that. That's what's up. And so you're, you're always inspiring me, Doc Pop, because you don't just, just do one thing. You do music, you I do games, you do yo-yos. You do, <laughs> what are the two? <laughs> music, music and games. Uh, I, I eat and I sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Those are, that's my two modes. Right. And when, when you're, and when you're not eating or sleeping, you're creating lots yeah, of things. Yeah. And so my question is, San Francisco, so being from the Bay Area, to me, it always has been this place of like digital mavericks and disruptors and creative people and counterculture. And now when I go back, it feels, I wonder if as a creative person yourself living in San Francisco, do you feel like it's a struggle to, to be able to afford to live there? Or do you feel like the creativity of the technology and the fusion of all the cultures makes it so it's it's like being there for so long you would never leave, right? Do you get get my question? Like, yeah, yeah, has yeah. it changed? Has it squeezed out the creative people that were there when you first got there? Well, the, the first thing I'd say is just in general, I believe you can never go back home. Like like when you've traveled and you come back, just everything, no matter what, it just never quite feels the same. So I can I can see if mm. I traveled and came back, I would be like yo, this feels different. So, and I, I just, in general feel that, you know, after you moved away, it's kind of hard to, to, to see things in the same light. But that being said, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's hella expensive to live out here. Any of the artists I know, and I know tons of artists, there's still tons of creative people out here, but you know, they're all, uh, they all have day, day jobs. I have a day job. You know, we all, we all have, the main thing that we do, I, I, I can't imagine being a pro yo-yoer uh, and living in San Francisco or, you know, professional musician living in San Francisco. The, those cats all have to move, you know, first they were moving, you know, out to the edges of the Bay Area and now they're mm. moving down to L.A. Um, if you want to be full time, that just seems to be the way to do it. Um, or Sacramento, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. So the, the scene here is still filled with creative people and there's like yeah. tons of stuff going on. You know, these people, a lot of people have day jobs. A lot of people listening to this podcast have day jobs and yet they still have a life and, you know, they might have a band that they do at night or whatever. And that's exactly what it's like in San Francisco. Like we all do this thing by day and then at night get to do our creative stuff. So they're, they're still creatives here and there's still things happening. Uh, but if you just want to be full time, uh, like, like I imagine, you know, your, your career is, uh, I, it, it would be 
it would be sort of unreasonable to live in San Francisco. Like you could do it anywhere. Uh, why mm. live in the most expensive city or whatever? You, you're in um, New York what, now, right? Yeah, I'm in Brooklyn. Yeah, I used to so, think. Uh, I used to think like, how do people in Brooklyn do it or, or New York do it? Like it seemed. It seems back in the day, like I would always think if I was just making art, why would I live in such an expensive place or whatever? And it's weird now that San Francisco has become that place. And like, and that, you know, a lot of my friends move from here to New York cause it's cheaper. It's <laughs> right. so weird. Yeah. That's insane. And, um, what was I going to say? Um, can I ask, what is your day hustle? Unless you don't want to talk about it. Oh, no, I work for a company called WP Engine. Um, it's a WordPress host. And uh, uh, I do content for their, um, they have this magazine that's all about WordPress. And I get to do that. So I'm not doing sales. I'm not doing coding. Um, I get to basically make videos and make drawings once a week. I do a drawing about WordPress, like uh, editorial cartoons. Um, and it's you know, it's kind of, it's kind of fun to have a creative job about something that's a little dry because it, it sort of helps train you to be creative. You know, it, it teaches you mm. like you have to turn it on and off. It's not just something you can sit around and wait for, you know, I, on a daily basis, I have to be creative about WordPress. So you have a new music project coming out, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's talk uh, about that. So, um, 15 years ago I did me geek pretty one day. Uh, which is my nerdcore rap album. Uh, then I did an album, you know, the first year the iPhone came out, I did an album entirely produced on an iPhone uh, using some of the early music making apps and stuff like that. And then I did, and that's called uh, Beeps and Smudges. Uh, and mm. then I did an album created on a Game Boy Advance using Nano Loop 2. So this is, you know, my first chiptune album. Uh, the Game Boy Advance is still old school and still has tons of limitations. Uh, that's called Destroy All Presets. That came out about five years ago. And mm. I am finally releasing my very first Game Boy album. Uh, it's called Waiting for an Earthquake. Uh, and it is going to be 10 tracks, about 40 minutes long. I'm super proud of it. It started off as an EP about three years ago. And, um, I just had trouble recording it because like all the, all the times you go into a studio or something, um, uh, I was on Madabomb records at the time. They wanted me to give them all the tracks separated, you know, the kick drum, the snare, the bass line. And, uh, with the Game Boy, you just can't. You just can't do that, right? Like mm. I, I kept trying to find solutions and there were some, they were super hacky and they didn't work and that just kept pushing the album back. The good news is I kept writing and eventually when I did record, I had an album's worth of material uh, versus like an EP and I'm super stoked with the new stuff. But um, in the end, it's funny because all I ended up doing was going into a studio and being like, look, I'm just going to plug in a headphone jack into my Game Boy and you're going to record it and that's it. Can you handle that? Like, you know, like, can we just right. be punk about it and just like embrace that versus trying to, you know, problem solve it. And that was really fun. That was actually very liberating to finally stop worrying about how am I going to multi-track this? And just, I mean, like when I go around on the bus, I have my Game Boy in my hand and this is how I listen to the music just straight out of the, you know, straight out of the headphone jack. So it's kind of, kind of awesome to just record it straight out of the headphone jack uh into like this really nice mixer and daw and you know go down go down into the recording uh basement and like do the vocals and stuff and do everything really nice but 
it all came from a headphone jack on a Game Boy. So can you change the levels of the mix within the program on the Game Boy? Or is everything kind of like maxed out? Yeah. Yeah. No, you, you, um, what you get off of the Game Boy is kind of hard to tweak. I mean, you could do mastering and, you know, and some compression and stuff. But, uh, in terms of in the Game Boy, I have four channels. Um, one just makes noise, uh, and two are sine waves and one's a square wave. Um, and so I kind of treat those as the noise channel is half of my drum. It's like my snares and my hats. Uh, and one of those sine waves is going to be my bass line and also my kick drum. Uh, you know, I kind of, I kind of tune the, the bass and, and shorten it. So it's got this punchiness. Uh, so it's kind of alternating and the other two channels are like melodies and stuff. Um, you can't do much in terms of panning. It's like hard left or hard right or hard center, but mm. you can go in and you can kind of stagger a note a little bit or, you know, lower, uh, the volume on notes, uh, so like if I was going to do side chaining where I want everything to duck down when the kick drum hits, I would literally go in and just move all of my other instruments just a fraction of a second later. So it sounds side chained. So it's like, you know, you, you, mm. you, you have that little pause or whatever. And so I'm manually doing that. Or you would go in and, you know, duck that first second uh, of audio and then bring it back up. But but usually we would just kind of bump, like just delay the sounds to, to get the same effects that people do in mastering uh, software. Does it save it on the cartridge or is it a USB or how do you make, keep your work saved? So, so I use a program called uh, Nanoloop and it is a cartridge. Uh, the Game Boy itself does not have to be modified. If you modify mm-hmm. it, it might be something like adding a backlight so you can kind of see it in broad daylight better um, or getting a cleaner audio out. But um, there's no hacks that you have to do to turn a Game Boy into a musical instrument. You literally just buy LSDJ or Nanoloop. Those are the two big carts. And you just put them in just like it's Tetris, turn it on. And instead of playing a video game, you're, you're in a tracking software. Uh, and LSDJ and Nanoloop are the two big ones. I, I love Nanoloop, but it's way more limiting um, in a way that's maybe why I like it. I definitely prefer working in very limited, um, situations where, I mean, it's all about limitations when you're, when you're composing on a Game Boy. So I, I embrace that and just kind of work on melodies and, and composition. Um, but the LSDJ cats, they go in there and they're actually altering sound waves and stuff, creating, you know, dubstep or whatever. They're like really tweaking stuff and really understanding mm. audio in a way that I, I don't do. So do you write out chords and stuff before? Or do you kind of go in and just like do it all within the program? Or do you like sit down and be like, okay, these are, this is going to be the chord changes. What's your process? Yo, I, I compose half of my music on guitar. And then the other half I compose by fucking around in Nanoloop. Um, mm. And those, those, you know, like the guitar stuff I really like because it's really melody driven. You know, if it worked on guitar and I was singing on top of it, it's very fun to take it into a Game Boy and you've got that solid groundwork and then everything else is just candy. Everything is just like, oh, these sweet Game Boy sounds just make it sound even better. But every now and then you're just messing around in the Game Boy and you get this weird sounds. You know, you just kind of intentionally break it or you you create this kind of electronic music that you couldn't go back and play on Game Boy or on guitar. 
You know, it, it only exists because of that. And I kind of like both of those songs equally. You know, sometimes I think everything sounds better if you actually compose it, you know, on piano or whatever, and then bring it into a Game Boy. You know, that's kind of a purist songwriting kind of philosophy. And then other times I'm like, nah, screw this. Like my favorite song on this album all started because I heard some weird sound and I built a song around it. How big are the files? Like one song would be what? Like five kilobytes or something? Like the actual... Probably. Like yeah. That. So the, so the songs live on the cart. Um, I don't, you yeah. know, I never bring them onto my computer to look at like, uh, what size they are. Um, uh, LSTJ gives you a little bit more flexibility with that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's kind of like a scary thing is some of these songs don't have backups on them and these carts are not super reliable. <laughs> so like, right. I, I don't like doing live shows anymore, um, with my Game Boy stuff. Because I just I just don't know. I don't know if this is going to be the last time that song ever works or, you know, whatever. Like, you could get on stage and nothing could happen. Or, you know, every now and then I'll, I'll boot up my uh, Game Boy with a card in. And instead of showing me all these different numbers for the rows, it'll just say F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-
duh, right? And then your voice and everything else is on top of that. Yeah. So you could go and e- do you try to do it live or do you go back and like meticulously try to nail each vocal part? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, do you give yourself uh, only one shot to do it or do you let yourself comp the vocals? A, a combination. Um, you know, I, I'm trying to embrace the rawness, but, um, you know, in San Francisco, we don't have a lot of garages to like, you know, have garage bands and stuff. Like I'm quietly singing in a one bedroom apartment, you know, and my wife, my wife lives with me or whatever. So like, I, I am way out of practice for, for singing. Um, so I was more than happy to do multiple takes in the end. I started off with this idea that it's just going to be as raw as the Game Boy. And there are tracks in there that are like choral, choral harmonies and stuff <laughs> like really like yeah. like deep harmonies and you know once i embraced that aspect of it you know i was like i was kind of like i'm, I'm feeling this uh this 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 huge harmonies here do you have a release date for the album or or not yet so waiting for an earthquake uh i am thinking march uh my next four months is going to be pretty much or four weeks it's going to be pretty much just knife tank, knife tank, knife tank. The whole album is recorded, um, and it's time for it to get mixed and mastered, uh, at which point I'll figure out if all apologies is going to be on it or not. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, like for the next four weeks, I'm going to be just living and breathing knife tank. It's my first game, and it's super important to me to, to nail that and just focus on that. Um, plus, I don't have to be around for mastering, so I guess... Uh, yeah, I don't even know what to do next. You know, once the album's done, there's that whole thing of how to market it, uh, which I haven't thought about in so long. Uh, do I just put it mm. up on Bandcamp for $5 and hope people buy it? Or do I kickstart it? Or do I send copies out to reviewers? Yeah, I guess you do the reviewer thing, That's right? Good, good question. Yeah, I mean, it depends how much you want to put into it because albums don't even... Yeah, it's hard to make money back, especially on streaming. Mm-hmm. You know, so without Kickstarter, it's hard for... I found it's hard to justify spending anything on promoting a record, right? So we hired a pub, Meg Rand and I hired a publicist on the last one, which was good, which was about three grand. And um, yeah, I think she did, she got us some great pieces, but I wouldn't have wanted to spend my rent money on that. You know what I mean? (laughs) So, and so, but I did an EP of video game songs at the end of last year, which I just put on Bandcamp, pay what you want. Mm -hmm. And, that and then I that made the money back from that. So it, I guess every project's different. But I guess if you're coming back after a few years of not having stuff, it might make sense to. I don't know. Depends how much you want to put into it, right? Time wise. Well, there's that other thing too. I'm not. I'm not going to tour with this. I don't even want to play a single live show <laughs> with this. You know, like yeah. uh, I, I'm just like I said. I'm terrified of getting on stage and nothing working. Um, so that makes the news cycle a little harder because it just means you have that one launch date and then it's done where people who tour can constantly promote their album. Or if I was splitting this up into singles, there'd be constant like, yo, it's another one. It's another one. And I can keep that hype going, but yeah, here it's just one thing and then it's done. I mean, I think doc pop something that I learned that was great from the last record. So if you use um, something like DistroKid, you can have it, have them do, a single every two weeks, right? And then pitch it to the Spotify playlist. And then and then you keep the same ISRC numbers, right? Which is like the code number. So when you release the EP or album, 
you put them all so all your plays are aggregated, which is kind of a cool way to do it. So you have 10 events coming up on people's who follow you on Spotify and stuff. They get the notification and then you put them all out on the album afterwards. Maybe you leave like one or two songs off. That's what we did. And we had like different art for each single. Yeah. You know, so then you make it in you make it a bunch of events. It's but it's very cost effective, you know. Yeah. So that's what I'm going to do next time, I think. Yeah. So that's one way to do without one way to make it like a bunch of events without paying for a publicist. Yeah. You know, well, you yeah, can pay for a publicist too. Yeah. All, all my friends in the industry, um, you know, are saying it's all about singles now. Uh, and you know, Beck is releasing, you know, a new single every month. Uh, and every now and then he's got like a surprise album, but it seems like, uh, all my friends are doing these like one or two tracks and then a month later, one or two tracks more. And I would totally be game for that, except I'm just so old school. I just, it's an album, you know? I have this album and it mixes together. And you, you wouldn't want people to access it in a fragmented way, you're saying? Yeah, and that's just me. I can get over that. You know, if they <laughs> like the music, I should just be happy if they're listening to the music. But it's, it's definitely one of those experiences where it's like, this song has to play after this song. You have to hear. And that's, you know, not what Spotify is about. So maybe on Spotify, mm. I should just do singles and, you know, and then have an album on Bandcamp or something like you were saying. You stay in touch with the Rondo brothers or not? I, I recorded with the Rondo brothers a little bit. Um, uh, Brandon and I did, uh, we tried recording music to work to. Uh, mm. I wanted to create this like 15 minute long instrumental track uh, as part of like kind of a concept album uh, or a series of things that was just literally like, music to work to <laughs> and you know i've seen some people do stuff like that but uh nothing nothing quite like the 15 to 20 you know minute long song and that's the last thing we worked on but um uh you know he's busy he's he's hustling making making beats uh for commercials and and you know film soundtracks and he's got like a, a bakery uh mission right. minis and he's got a day job and he's got a you know a kid he does an excellent job raising so, I mean, he's, he's kind of an inspiration for me. Like, I'd love to be as together as that. Right, <laughs> right. Um, Jim, I did, my last record I did with Jim in his Berkeley studio. Yeah. So he's doing a lot of stuff out there, which is, yeah, it's a good spot. Yeah, so that's where. That's I guess they don't really work together much anymore. Yeah, not much. Like, we, we recorded in Jim's studio, and it was very much like, like oh, hey, Jim, we're going we're gonna to go upstairs and. Uh, do that thing. And I don't know how often Brandon goes there. I think he does most of his compositions just at home, but he doesn't have that recording studio at his home anymore. So you've stayed in close touch with him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we live That's in the neighborhood tight. and his mission minis is right around the corner. I see him riding around in his golf cart uh, all the time, you know, like, yeah. Hey doc. Hey Brandon. Speaking of old friends, beefy did a, a rap for you for your Kickstarter video, right? Yeah, dude. Uh, Tell us about that. That's tight. I was watching that today. So, um, yeah, like the Kickstarter videos can be kind of causing pressure sometimes. What are we going to do? How are we going to convey this information? Um, and with this video, I thought it would be fun to uh, make a beat. And it's this like extreme metal beat. Uh, you know, so there's we have this screamo artist who just comes in and screams knife tank. And then beefy wrote lyrics that were basically describing the rules of the game and he just killed it it was like i think for him right. it was like just another challenge like another weekly challenge and right. i thought it would be impossible i couldn't i couldn't do it um and he yeah he just 
wrote this thing and it's dope. It's uh, once the once the Kickstarter is live. Well, actually, you can go to knifetank.bandcamp.com and you can download the full two minute long song, which is it's kind of dope for a pitch video. Do you made that beat or who made that beat? Yeah, I made that beat. Um, I uh, you know I use Splice uh, heavily for like the guitar and and you know kind of sounds. It was my first time writing you know extreme metal. You know it like. It's not heavy metal, uh, but metal. Um, first time writing with that stuff, and I used a lot of guitar samples, added bass lines, and then, yeah, it's it's hard to describe, but it sounds dope. It's it's definitely rap rock, and I know that right. that's got, you know, connotations or whatever, good or bad, uh, but it's on the good side, I think, of rap rock. <laughs> well, I think that late 90s, especially in the past few years, have had this resurgence, right? Yeah. Like that aesthetic is... So, yeah, I was like, oh, this is a good beat. I didn't know you made it. I'm impressed. Yeah. Good thanks. job, Doc Pop. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're going to play a song. We're going to play... this. You sent me the demo for it. This is from... It's called Wait, Waiting for the Earthquake? Waiting for an Earthquake. It's just, it's just about like uh, whenever there's an earthquake in town, sometimes I feel superstitiously like, oh, thank God the earth has let off some pressure. You know? So if there hasn't been an earthquake for like six months, you're like, oh, this is going to be big when it happens. So when, when right. we're having just a bunch of little tiny earthquakes, it actually puts me at ease. Uh, and that's, yeah, that's the name of the song is kind of inspired by that. That's tight. As opposed to the one big earthquake that allegedly won't be so good for California one day, right, maybe. Right. And it's total superstitious. It's total BS, but it's my mind, you know, can't help but to think, Oh, thank God I survived that earthquake. You know, the next one won't be bad. And so this, obviously the metaphor of this is the earthquake. You're letting off this creative pressure. This thing you've been incubating is finally coming out. Right. Do you think, is that like a purposeful metaphor? Or am I reading into it? You may be reading into it. I like it. it. It works for the album. Um, this song is actually about those cats who live here and complain about the scene, uh, the music mm. scene. And you know, they don't go out to shows, uh, and they can't quite acknowledge that. Like sometimes we just get old or like things change. You know, right. so like uh, like their favorite band, you know, broke up and it's the end of the world and they're ignoring that there's someone someone's got a new favorite band. You know, there's a new new scene happening. And, and when they're talking trash about, you know, the city, they're sort of talking trash about like people who are having a good time here and like younger generation. Mm, interesting. So that's what the song's so that, about. So that's interesting, Doc Pop. So the idea that. If you're talk, if you speak ill about a scene, it's just you're not finding the right the right context, or you're not you're not looking hard enough. Is that kind of what you mean? I, I'm not saying that's always the case, but there is a group yeah. out there like that. There was there was this woman who put a compilation together when I was writing this song, and uh, I think the OCs had moved from uh, Oakland to LA. And she was like, it's the end of the world. This is terrible. Uh, I'm going to get all these former, you know, SF bands to record this compilation about how much the, the scene sucks now. And meanwhile, we're doing shows at DNA Lounge once a month. And the scene is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and I, yeah, it's it was me dealing with my frustration of hearing someone say, you know, art sucks in the city when I'm like, I kind of like it right now. Like, it's kind of dope. Right. And, and I, I think, you know, if I, if you ever hear me say art sucks in the city, it's probably just because I don't want to go out anymore. You know, I'm probably just getting too old for it. 
you're on the internet a lot. Let's plug your sites and let's plug the Kickstarter and we'll play the jam. Uh, the Kickstarter, just go to knifetank.com. That's knife and then tank.com. Uh, and I am Doc Pop on Instagram, Twitter, uh, docpop.org. Uh, so docpop.bandcamp. So D O C P O P. That's what's up. Succinct. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm glad we could talk, man. This is tight. Yeah. Cheers, man. And uh, okay, so we're going to play the song and uh, encourage you all to back the Kickstarter. So this today is January 20th when people are hearing it. So the Kickstarter will have already launched. So it's going, you're doing it for a month or how long? I'm thinking about doing it for like two weeks. Two weeks. So it will be midway, right? Yeah, yeah. When you hear this, the campaign will be halfway through. So you have the chance to either get on the winning ticket and ride this roller coaster that's just going towards a million or... Uh, I haven't reached my goal yet, and you can help make it happen. You, it could be your uh, $13 that helps make this project a reality. So either way, you're a winner if you back <laughs> this flavor. Yeah, there's no losing in this. If you don't like my project, you're just old. The last thing I want to say is you're one of those people I feel like will be forever inquisitive and curious about life and childlike at heart in a good way. That's something I like about you, Doc Pop. I don't think you'll ever get bored in life. I hope. Do you agree? Uh, I, I hope not. I, don't, I do not tend to get bored. Uh, anxious, but not bored. And, and yo, like, uh, you know, like I was saying about Brandon, I think you're one of those dudes that's, that's taken uh, the ability to focus on something, like laser focus on something that I don't have for the most part. And, you know, pick that hobby and like really do it. Cause you, you do zines and stuff too. You do all sorts of stuff, but you found a way to really be you professionally, which is kind of a dream. Thanks doc pop. Well, this is the new doc pop song. We'll keep you posted on the album, back the game, check it out. Thanks bro. See ya.
Oh, shoot. Great song. Thanks, Doc Pop. That was tight. This week, it's time for the MC, the MC Lars. Lars. Patreon, Patreon Larson of, the, of week. the week. We got my friend Tim Thompson, who's actually a former guest on the podcast, who calls in and shares some funny memories. Hey, Andrew. It's uh, Tim. Leaving you a message. I was going to mention something about your obsession with cows in the fourth grade, but I mean, I really feel like that's not really a story that was just part of your identity back then. So I don't really know much of what I'd talk about uh, in regards to that. But I thought about a story involving you and I. It was uh, in the late 90s. I believe um, it was right after the Blair Witch Project came out. And um, we we decided to make our own parody film of the Blair Witch Project called the Blair B Word Project. And uh, so it was the, the plot of the movie consisted of you and I running around in your parents' backyard shaking the camera and seeing how many bad words we could say in a row. And it was just us cussing for 30 minutes while recording on, on VHS. And then uh, I wanted to take it home. And so you made me a copy of it. And the funny thing was, was like, well, I can't, I couldn't have a copy with all the swearing on it because my parents, you know, wouldn't have liked that. So I had you make me a copy <clears throat> with just the visuals and no audio. And what's, what makes me kind of sad about that now is I don't have a copy with the, the sound because I, I think, I don't know what happened to it. Maybe you still have it, but like, it's just us cursing in the woods. But without that, it's just you, video of you and I just flailing and shaking the camera around your parents' backyard. And the sad part about that whole thing was your parents live in Carmel Valley and Carmel Valley is covered in poison oak. And uh, we tried to, you know, keep ourselves clean and not get too much uh, poison oak on us, but uh, it didn't work. And I just remember the next two weeks just being covered in poison oak sores. And uh, and I, I and I didn't even have a version of the movie that we had filmed with sound. So it was a it was a soundless version of a movie we filmed in the woods, and I was covered in poison oak. So. Um, you know, it sounds miserable, but honestly, uh, that was, I had a lot of fun <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Anyway, love you, buddy. Uh, hope that story was good enough. I'll talk to you later, but I remember that Tim. I remember that. Thank you for calling in. You inspire my creativity and my joy for life. And I'll send you a free MC Larcher. I know you have like 40 already, but you get another one. So thanks, Tim. Next week we got Marshall Carper who used to work at Center Steel, which is the Pittsburgh-based company that did the MC Lars game and the sequel to MC Lars Brotherhood. We talk about the new projects he's working on, and we talk about marketing, and we talk about the books he's written. So that is next week. Iron Man 3 song coming this week on Patreon. Thank you all for your support. Hope you're all having a good new year. Happy Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Let's remember him by thinking about how we've made a lot of progress, but we got a long way to go. So that's all I'm going to say about that right now. Next week, tune in. See you guys soon. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Dr. Popular. Peace.